From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. One major league soccer owner is leading a $50 million investment. The blurring of the lines between sports team owners and the sports gambling space. Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Evan Novi Williams. Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. Heidi O'Neill is president of direct-to-consumer at Nike. Then the race car driver, Elio Castro. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Eben Novi Williams. And I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Michael Barr. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we begin with the NFL putting together a plan to refund tickets for any games that may end up canceled this year. This reportedly came in a memo sent to the teams by Commissioner Roger Goodell of it. Yeah, guys, you know, the the official word from the NFL remains that they expect to get the full 17 weeks regular season in. Uh, They're going to release the schedule later this week. Everyone expects that schedule to kind of be the full schedule. However, there are things around the edges that make you think that the NFL realizes that there is a decent chance that this season is going to be disrupted in some ways. There were some, uh, some, some pay cuts at the league office last week, two weeks ago, and now this. As you said, Michael, you know, a, a plan put in place by the league across all of its teams, essentially telling them uh, if any fan who has bought tickets through the team wants a refund, uh, you have to grant them that or give them credit towards a uh, to, towards one in the future. Jason, am I thinking about that correctly? Do you think is this kind of a, a, a slower admission by the NFL that hey, you know, we're aware that there's a chance that that, that things may not go as planned heading in September. It's got to be. And and listen, it's good to see that they're doing some sort of contingency planning. I think it'd be silly if they weren't. I mean, to some extent, there are two scenarios that they outline here beyond, I think, the very unlikely one that we just like, hey, we're all going to the Giants game this weekend. Like, that seems very <laughs> unlikely. Um, but one is they cancel the season or somehow postpone it. The other is games without fans. And we're going to talk a little bit later on about one league, one much smaller, uh, nascent league, uh, playing games without fans in sort of a quarantined type situation, that feels more likely. And I guess the other thing that I would say is going back to what we talked about earlier this week about the Miami Dolphins, they're envisioning maybe a situation where you've got a third of the fans. So that means two thirds aren't showing up and they're probably going to want their money back. Absolutely. And, and as we said here, you know, these are for, for fans who bought tickets from the club directly. It sounds like the NFL also has some buy-in from some of its secondary market partners, you know, your StubHubs, your your, your Ticketmasters, your SeatGeeks, to refund some or all of the tickets there. Where that leaves out, Michael Barr, is is brokers. You know, there's going to be a big reckoning in in the broker world where if you, you know, if you got your hands on a ticket for 
X amount and then you sold that moving forward for, you know, 6X, you know, when you have to refund all that, there's a chance that you've already spent the profit you made on that for something else, right? Which might not be refunded in an easy way. So I do think that, you know, even though the folks who maybe bought tickets from directly from teams will be okay, maybe some folks that made secondary market purchases are going to be okay. It still kind of leaves the, the middlemen in this whole scenario, I think, holding the bag and potentially in, in some pretty dire straits financially. Yeah, if you bought your tickets from Benny saying, I got some front row seats, baby, you're in trouble. So yeah, that's not going to work. But one thing that is going to happen, and we talked about this earlier, and I wonder what these guys are going to do, because there are going to be less seats available, even if they do have fans coming into the stadiums, the ticket prices are going to go up. So then that means, and you, we all know about business, it's supply and demand, right. and if there's not enough supply, that means the prices are going to go up. And I'm just wondering what these brokers are going to do uh, when that situation happens. I think one of the things you're going to see, certainly from the, the team side, is maybe some innovative options where if you're, you know, Jason Kelly Giants fan and you had tickets for a September game that doesn't have fans, you know, we'll give you your refund, but we may instead ask you, hey, let us keep your money. Next year, your credit is worth one and a half times whatever you paid. Uh, and that is a way to maybe spread out the, the, the financial damage. It lets you kind of push some of that loss onto the balance sheet for next year. It also keeps Jason involved, right? Excited right. about the game that he's going to go to next year and not this year. I think you're going to see a number of teams kind of within the rubric that Roger Goodell laid out. And, and, and I think we'll see this across all sports. Uh, college, for example, also, you know, I think they're going to ask their wealthy season ticket holders, hey, if the games don't happen, like, would you be willing to turn your season ticket into a donation yeah. for the university? I think there's just going to be a lot of options that they're going to try to get people to think about ways in which they can, instead of getting a refund, do something that maybe pushes their tickets down the road, but also, you know, helps financially benefit the team or the, the college where their, where their fans are. Well, and I also think one of the things that the teams and the leagues are going to be wrestling with is something that we're starting to see in the broader world, which is just because you reopen or just because you figure out a way to do something with people, it doesn't actually guarantee they're going to show up. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that people all of a sudden are, are going to, you know, that no one's going to want to go to a football game. But I do think there's this, to use a uh, maybe tortured uh, old sports cliche, you know, if you open it, will they come? You know, will they actually show up? Will consumers feel safe showing up with even 15,000 of their closest friends to a sporting event in September? Maybe it's different in November or December where we feel better about a vaccine. I just think there are some big questions about the appetite Especially, and I think, Michael, you said this earlier in the week, when you can, like, chill out at home with a nice big TV and watch the game. So as long as the games are happening, I might be more comfortable just chilling with some, you know, beer and popcorn. You're right, Jason. I mean, I can watch the Detroit Lions lose on TV. So why do I want to go to the stadium and go to the... I'm sorry. That's too soon. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang, 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Uh, up next in our daily roundup of the pandemic planning in the world of sports, we have word on how the Premier Lacrosse League plans to handle things this season. Yeah, guys, this is the Lacrosse League launched last year by Paul Rabel, the sport's best-known player, and his brother, Mike, who have been on the show before. Jason, I know you know them pretty well as well. Um, Yeah, they they have answered for their own league kind of this this all-important question of of, of how do we get some sort of a season in right now to, to satisfy our partners, our sponsors, our fans, our players. And their answer is a 15-day fully quarantined lacrosse tournament. They don't have a location yet. It's going to be at the end of July. All the games, all 20 games, including the playoffs, are going to be televised or streamed through their exclusive partner, NBC. Uh, But this is their sophomore season. Instead of touring around the country as they did last year, as they certainly planned to do this year, uh, they're instead going to do everything in a 15-day span, all in a fully quarantined kind of campus scenario uh jason obviously not a a great result for them they'd rather have the the full season but you know given what's happening if they can get this event off the ground i think that this is a a a nice result for them and it lets them satisfy kind of the big revenue streams that they have i totally agree with you and i have to say and as you know as you said uh i do know these guys uh pretty well i've gotten to know them and they're smart and i also think that in some ways, they're they're doing their best to make sort of lemonade out of lemons here. And also, I think understanding the broader world that is, and we've talked a ton about this already, is just starved for sports of any form, especially mm-hmm. on TV. I mean, ESPN is a desert right now, and I know we're going to talk about it uh, in a minute when it relates to, to Disney earnings. But, I mean, you're going to put fresh content on... On TV, you're going to put it on NBC and its family of networks. The broadcast was the thing that was really driving their business last year. I think as much as they said, hey, you know, we were happy with how many people showed up, the attendance wasn't the thing. It was Mm -hmm. the broadcast and really getting to this growing base of fans, many of whom are younger, many of whom are affluent. I mean, we are talking about lacrosse here. So I think this is pretty smart. Yeah, broadcast and, and sponsors as well. Yep. You know, they um, good point. They, they're up two and a half times from last year. Their their sponsorship numbers. I believe it's their biggest revenue driver. And the surprising thing to me, one of the things Mike Rabel told me this week. Uh, by doing this 15-day tournament, they are satisfying all of their sponsorship requirements. That's incredible. So it's a shortened season, of course, but they're going to keep all those deals intact. They're going to add some on-field logos, maybe more advertising during the broadcasting. As you're talking about, Jason, they do a lot of really innovative work on social media, some digital video. They're going to be doing more of that, and those things, as you guys, you guys know, you don't need to be on the field. You don't need to necessarily be playing games, especially for the way that their, their audience you know, interacts with their game. Uh, so yes, I think that this is this is a smart result. It is not perfect, but it lets them uh, it lets them keep going. And 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 Michael, a question for you. You know, this is not a league like the NBA that's been around for multiple decades. It's not you know it's not fully ingrained in the sports ecosystem right now. 
how important do you think it is for them just to have something, to have kind of some sort of continuity here, as opposed to saying, oh, man, the, the pandemic happened. We can't get anything off the ground. This You'll, you'll see us in year three without having a year two. Be, being a young league, I think it's important for them to keep some sort of continuity going in, in their early stages. Well, it's like what Mike Grable said to you, that they're going to have lacrosse on television for 15 days straight. It's kind of like binge-watching on Netflix. Right. And, and you can't help but to have that pent-up demand for the live sports. It can't do anything but help them out. And as time goes along, I, I hope to that more sports do something like this because you can kind of binge-watch a sport and uh, get hooked and get right back and get the popularity going again. Absolutely. And we, we know that all the big sports are all looking at this same idea, right? The NBA yes. is considering, you know, sports in a bubble somewhere. The NHL is talking to towns in New Hampshire and North Dakota, the, the same idea. There's things about the lacrosse league that make things a lot easier in that regard. There's less teams. There's fewer games. The league owns all the teams. So it's, it's a single decision-making process, which makes things easy. You know, they also, you know, no one has a home stadium. It's a tour-based model. So no, no one is stuck trying trying to kind of make people happy in a specific region or a specific city. So so in this regard, you know, the PLL has has an advantage in maybe getting this thing off the ground. But I do think that there are people, you know, and I know these guys are talking to, to folks at the NBA and the NHL. I think across the sports world, this is potentially the goal right now yep. is to figure out a way, even in some abridged way, maybe make it the binge watching idea that you're talking about, Michael, but but trying to get something off the ground and, and if doing it all in one place in one condensed time is the safest way for your athletes to do that, then you know, I think that's the way this is gonna work out. Well, and I think that's the really important point here is the timing of this means that every league is going to be watching this so closely and they are going to be studying every single aspect to it. And I will say, I mean, Paul and Mike both, they are indefatigable when it comes to like networking and being out there. They are working it all the time. And you know that they are going to be very open to sharing everything that they can about this, because if they can go down in history, essentially, in this sort of twisted history that we're in as figuring out a way to get sports back, they're heroes at this point. And finally, since we're talking about broadcasting, let's talk sports media in the age of COVID-19. And if you are Disney, if you remember the coyote that was chasing the roadrunner, and he would hold up a sign that says EGADS, well, that's what happened to Disney's ugly report all around the world's biggest entertainment company. But let's dig into what it says about the state of sports broadcast media rights right now. And it's going to be tough to get money. I, granted, Disney makes their money off the parks. That's their bread and butter. But obviously, when it's kind of closed, you can't make any money. And never mind the entertainment part of it, too. So this is really going to impact uh, how much it's going to cost for media rights. Evan, what do you think? Yeah, guys, this has been a, I mean, this is the, the business nerd in me. I, I don't think I've ever been this excited for an earnings report than I was <laughs> this this week when, when Disney talked about its, you know, its first quarter. And granted, this is a quarter that ended, I believe, at the end of March. So certainly not all encompassing in any way of kind of what the what the reality is among the pandemic. Uh, but just to toss some, some numbers out there on, on the ESPN side, you know, I think the big things, uh, their ad revenue down 8% in the quarter. Uh, their ESPN Plus subscriptions 
up a pretty good amount, 20% quarter over quarter. They're almost at 8 million subscribers. You know, remember that they have bundled those oftentimes with Disney Plus, yep. which is going through the roof right now. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little hard to judge that number exactly on its face. But, but Jason, you know, looking at these numbers, getting kind of an early sense of maybe how this sports shutdown is affecting ESPN, you know, one of, one of the bigger units at Disney, what were your takeaways? Was this about what you expected? Did things actually look better or worse than you were expecting? You know, it looked a little bit better, and I think in part that's because of what you said, that it's not fully baked in, and we really need to see this current quarter that we're living in to understand exactly what the ramifications are. And you guys know as well as I do, I mean, ESPN has been – Struggling may be too strong a word, but certainly has been trying to find itself a little bit over the past uh, couple years in terms of what its offering is. I mean, all the way down to some talent management issues and things like that. So this couldn't have come uh, at a worse time. I think they're looking out at a fall that is incredibly bleak if there is some lack or a total lack of college football. I mean, you think about franchises like Game Day and other things, and it's hard to imagine the revenue that will be lost if they're not able to put a lot of those games on television. So I think the story is yet to be written, and I I think you're totally right about some of the benefit they're getting from the other streaming services, uh, notably Disney Plus, and as a uh, big consumer of Disney Plus here, <laughs> notably uh, Frozen 2, Moana, those sorts of things, and maybe a little Star Wars thrown in. I hear you. I mean, I think that's how <laughs> I think that's how people uh, did end up with ESPN Plus. I, I don't think they're dialing it up to just watch some of the random stuff that's on ESPN these days, are they? I mean, are you watching Michael Barr? Are you watching a lot of ESPN right now? Not the marble racing, I'm not. But other than that, <laughs> I, I mean, I did watch the uh, the Michael Jordan uh, yes. documentary, and and ESPN couldn't wait for that to come out because they were telling the producers, please put this out earlier. We need some programming, and that really helped ESPN at least. But to put it in perspective, guys, in case anybody who didn't know. This whole coronavirus crisis cost Disney as much as $1.4 billion in lost profit last quarter. Yeah. So far. So far. Yeah. yeah. And, and Michael, I'm actually glad you brought up the I'm glad you brought up the Last Dance, that Michael Jordan documentary. We, we've talked a lot, you know, in the past few weeks about kind of the different things ESPN was trying. You know, it did the Ocho and the the marble racing. It was doing kind of old sports movies for a while. It was doing classic games. I think they have hit on their potential short-term solution for keeping people engaged. And it is smart documentary, original content. The first six episodes of the last dance averaging 5.8 million viewers on Sunday night. That's a, that's a good number, you know, regardless of what the, what the event is. And, And I understand now ESPN is kind of moving, accelerating three more documentaries, one on Lance Armstrong, one on Bruce Lee, and then one that I think is probably the most anticipated of the three, a documentary on the 1998 home run race between Sammy Sosa and and Mark McGuire. So I do think that, you know, as, as we wait for, for live sports to resume, you know, the, the documentary angle is one that I definitely think ESPN is going to play just because of how well this Michael Jordan one 
has done. And then on the other side, you know, they're going to get live events back, I think, sooner than people think this weekend, in fact. UFC is holding yeah, UFC yeah. 249 in Florida. That will be available on, you know, ESPN Plus and then ESPN Linear. And then the big ones are a pay-per-view, $65 that you buy through ESPN Plus. So there is at least help on the way in some ways for ESPN moving forward. This has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports Podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Jason Kelly and Evan Novi williams We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again tomorrow when we speak with Formula E CEO Jamie Regal. Woohoo! You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports and Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.